Bible, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, pretty good Bible studies. We're in Matthew 15. We're going to take up two topics today at the end of the chapter from verses 21 to the end of the chapter. We're going to talk about the Syrophoenician woman with the daughter with a demon, and we're going to talk about the feeding of the 4,000, not the 5,000, but the 4,000. Verses 21 through 22 say this, when Jesus left there, left where? Well, if you recall, he just came back from feeding the 5,000, and he had landed in Gennesaret, which was in the vicinity, a region in the vicinity of Capernaum, which was on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, of course, the people are going crazy, chasing him to do miracles, and so he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre is about 30 miles up the Lebanese coast from the northern border of Israel, and Sidon is even further north than that. Those are Lebanese cities, Phoenician cities in ancient terms, and those, of course, were world-famous trading cities. They were not Jewish. It was not a Jewish area. This, this was a pagan area. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly tormented by a demon. She's a Canaanite woman. She's not Jewish. The, Phoenician, the term Phoenicia, Phoenician and Canaanite often got confused because Phoenicia was called Canaan a lot of times instead of Phoenician. In modern-day terms, it would be Lebanon, where Lebanon is today, right there on the upper part of the eastern Mediterranean coast. So Phoenicia was called Canaan, and the whole promised land sometimes was called Canaan. So sometimes, as, as often happens, the geographical terms were not precise. Adam Clark says Canaanites and Phoenicians were often confounded and what he does is he looks at Genesis 46.10 and Exodus 6.15, and he, those two verses are referring to the same person. In one place, the scripture calls him a Canaanite, and in the other place, he calls him a Phoenician. So it's the same idea. So this woman up there was a, Seraph, was a Canaanite. She was a Phoenician. And Mark, the Gospel of Mark, actually calls her other names. Calls her a Greek, because the Jews used to call anybody of another nation a Greek. He also calls her a Syro-Phoenician because Syria was right north of Phoenicia and right east of Phoenicia. At least modern-day Syria is. Uh, ancient Syria there was to the east of Phoenicia. And Phoenicia, as a matter of fact, had been conquered and ruled by Syria in the past before this. And so Syro-Phoenician just refers to people from that area. Now, why was Canaanite Phoenician woman not a Jew? Why did she call Jesus the son of David? This was a title used by Jews for the Messiah, not Canaanites, not Phoenicians. Well, it could be she was a Jewish proselyte, according to uh, John Gill, or it could have been she just heard the general report and the fame of Jesus, and she decides she's going to call him what everybody else is calling him, the Messiah, the son of David. Now, why did the disciples withdraw to Tyre and Sidon? Well, as a matter of fact, ever since the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus and, and his disciples have been skirting Galilee, have been staying out of, the, out of the area. And the reason was, was to avoid all that opposition that could arise in Galilee because he was drawing so many crowds. And the Jews were sending Pharisees up from Jerusalem, trying to test him, trying to check him out. And also he withdrew because he wanted to have an opportunity to teach his disciples, which he didn't have when he was ministering all day long praying at night, ministering during the day. He needed to have some quiet time with his, with his disciples. The NIV, my NIV study Bible actually has four places, four times, four regions to which, the, to which Jesus withdrew. The northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee at one time, which of course is near Capernaum. One time he withdrew to Phoenicia, which is right now. One time he withdrew to Decapolis, which is on the, on the eastern and southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. One time he withdrew to Caesarea Philippi, which is north, a city north of the Sea of Galilee. 
fairly far north. In fact, you can still go there today. It's called, it was a place called Pania, I think, if I remember. I think that's what they call it today. The Roman name of Caesarea Philippi is the source of the, of the of Jordan River. But at any rate, it's, it, even today it's sort of remote. Back then it was remote. Jesus had to get away. Too many crowds. It's a great lesson for those who get burnt out doing Christian ministry. Matthew 15, verses 23 through 24. Yet he, Jesus, did not say a word to her, the Syrophoenician woman. Now think about that. Why would Jesus not say a word to her? Not say a word. She's begging him, please, please, heal my daughter. So his disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she cries out after us. He replied to the, to the disciples, Jesus replied to the disciples, I will send only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It sounds like here Jesus is agreeing with disciples. They want the woman to shut up, and he's saying, hey, I'm only coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's not of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, so I agree with you. It sort of sounds like that. But as we see here, he's willing to give the woman another chance. Now that phrase, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, was a an echo of what he had told his disciples. 12 apostles that he had sent out on their first missionary journey in Matthew 10, he said, send them only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Stay away from the Gentiles. And so Jesus was more or less doing what he told his apostles to do. Now, the next question is, is why did he do that? Well, that's an interesting question because I guess it was because Jesus had to focus all of his attention on fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies in the land of the Jews, because that's where the Jews were the ones who had the oracles, the prophecies, and all was prophesied that it was going to be fulfilled in Israel. And if he he only had a limited amount of time and a, lim, a limited amount of people, and with everybody from all over the area coming to get healed and so forth, pretty soon he wouldn't be able to fulfill his ministry. He couldn't he couldn't minister to everybody. He came first to the house of Israel. He knew that eventually the Gentiles were going to, were going to get ministered to. So Jesus is, that's why Jesus was not answering this woman. Now, you know, that's a hard thing. To me, it would be a hard thing to do to see a woman in anguish like that and not answer. But as many people have pointed out, Jesus was actually trying to try her faith. By not answering her, he was going to see, is she going to keep coming? Is she going to keep coming? Which, of course, is a great lesson and application for us. We ask, we ask God and we don't get an answer. Are we going to just give up or are we going to keep turning to him and say, God, like Martin Luther's dog staring at him wanting that food? Are we going to keep saying, Jesus, I need an answer here. Importunate prayer. There's several parables about importunate prayer. Parable of the judge. Parable of the neighbor who knocked on the door. Knock, 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 knock. Kept on knocking. I want my answer. I need some food. So that's why Jesus didn't answer. He was testing her faith, basically. And he was also showing to the disciples that they needed to concentrate their ministry in Israel first before they went to the Gentiles. Paul himself said, in Romans 15:8, for I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised, that means the Jews, on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the Father. Again, that's what I was saying. He, he needed to confirm those promises to the Father, and he only had a limited amount of time and a limited amount of mobility, and so he focused on the Jews first. Matthew 15, verses 25 through 26. But she came, knelt before him, and said, Lord, help me. Now, that's begging for you right now. You can see it in the cold prose there. You can hear a voice. He answered, Jesus answered her, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Now, what he meant was, is that he's the Jewish Messiah. The Jews, he's the bread of life for Jews right now. And Gentiles are dogs. And it's not right for me to start ministering to Gentiles till I finish ministering to Jews. Now, it sounds almost like Jesus is calling the Gentiles dogs here, and he's not because the dog is like a little puppy dog, a pet dog. 
The Greek, as my NIV study Bible says, the Greek says little dogs. Throw it to your little puppy dog. It doesn't sound quite so bad when you say it that way. It means a pet dog in the home. Jesus, Jesus was merely adopting the common dialect of the Jewish people. The woman understood that. She understood that that uh, she was not of the Jewish family. A puppy dog at the table would be the Jewish family, and she was not so honored. She knew that Jesus was not speaking in a pejorative sense. Adam Clark says here, what terrible repulses, and yet she still perseveres. Now, she was a persistent woman. She wanted her daughter healed, and she believed Jesus could do it, and she wasn't going to take no for an answer, which is pretty cool if you think about it. You know, think about all these lepers that were scared to even identify themselves, the woman with the issue of, of the blood for all those years. They were scared to come talk to Jesus, and so they touched him from behind, that kind of This woman touched him from behind. This woman went straight to Jesus and said, Lord, help me. She called him Lord, by the way. Now, maybe that was just a polite address. You call people Lord like we call people Sir. But maybe she recognized that he was the Messiah, that he was a man of sovereignty, of dominion, of power. And I suspect after hearing about all those healings, that's what she was thinking. So when Jesus said it isn't right to feed those dogs with the bread from the children's table, he was trying her faith. This is how the woman responds in verse 27, Matthew 15. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She was willing to take a crumb. She just wanted her daughter healed. That was a pretty smart answer. That woman was sharp. She was persistent and she was sharp. I'd like to meet her in heaven one day. Now, the fact that Jesus rewarded her attitude shows that our attitudes do affect what he does for us. I don't see how you can deny that. I mean, Jesus honored faith and he honored persistence. If you don't get an answer to your prayer right now, just keep praying. Dig in there. Maybe fast a little bit. Maybe get on your knees and start begging God like this Samaritan woman did, this Syrophoenician woman did. She says, please, Lord, heal my daughter. She didn't go around saying, you know, it's not fair. You're teaching to the Jews and you're not coming to us Syrophoenicians, us Gentiles, us Canaanites, us Phoenicians. It's just not fair. If she was living today, she'd probably call Jesus a racist, the only way people are so triggered by all that kind of stuff she didn't act like that she just said give me some crumbs matthew 15 verse 28 then jesus replied to her woman your faith is great let it be done for you as you want and from that moment her daughter was cured and you notice this was curing from a distance the demon was cast out and jesus wasn't even there in the demon demoniac's daughter's presence jesus said your faith is great and it was great connected with perseverance he called a woman and that always sounds rude to me and where I'm from, we would say, ma'am, or if it was a married lady, and she was married, she had a daughter, we would say, ma'am, your faith is great, but in the Greek, it's woman, and it sounds so rude to me. If it's an unmarried woman, we'd say miss, or young lady, if it was younger than us, or something, but not woman. That just is kind of rude, kind of rough, so I don't really know, I don't know if that's a good translation or not, but all the English translations seem to do that. Woman, remember when Jesus said to his mother, woman? What have I to do with you or whatever? He's, I forgot what he said to her, but he called her woman. I thought, oh, that's, a, that's being rude to your mama. All right, let's go to Matthew. Oh, let me, let's, before I go to Matthew 15, 29, let's point out one thing about Jesus. He only marveled at two things, faith and lack of faith. Remember, if there was, he, he, he would marvel at Peter. He says, Peter, you don't understand that parable yet? And then he, and when Peter was walking on the water and started sinking, what's the matter with you, Peter? Oh, you have little faith? Oh, you of little faith? He's walking on the water. He's trying to walk on the water. Oh, you of little faith? So Jesus was really, he, he just was just shocked that people didn't believe in him. But there was another thing that surprised him, too, is when there was faith, like the centurion, such faith that he had not seen in Israel when Jesus healed the centurion's servant. And here he marveled at this 
Syrophoenician woman's faith, both of whom were not Israelites. Matthew 15, 29, moving on from there, from Syrophoenicia, from the area of Tyre and Sidon. By the way, he wasn't in the city of Tyre and Sidon. He was in the area around Tyre and Sidon. Moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain and sat there. Now we learn from the parallel in Mark. Let me read that. Mark 7, verse 31, again, leaving the region of Tyre, which is about 30 miles north of Israel on the Mediterranean coast, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon, Side a little bit further north. So he went in that area. He went to the Sea of Galilee, which is further south and east. And then he went across the sea. Well, actually, I don't know if he went across the sea. He might have just went around the lake. Went around the lake and he came to the region of the Capitals, which is to the east and southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Let's just say the eastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Decapolis. That means ten cities. The cities were Gentiles. And because it was Decapolis, they were both Gentiles and Jews in the crowd with him. Now, this was very usual for Jesus to go up and sit on a mountain because Rabbi sat. And again, I th- here's some options as to why he sat on that mountain. Because he wanted solitude, John Gill suggests. Because he wanted to pray, John Gill suggests. So the people could hear him better because when you're up on a mountain and you're speaking, your voice carries further. That's a good practical reason. I think that it would be because when Jesus taught, he generally did it on mountains because he wanted to be seen as a new lawgiver, even as Moses, the old lawgiver, was taught from a mountain, Mount Sinai. Jesus would always teach from mountains. Well, you had the Mount of Transfiguration. You had the Sermon on the Mount. You have the, and you have here, he's sitting on a mountain. Now, as he was sitting on that mountain, he was probably taking some rest after the long journey from the area of Tyre and Sidon, and he was waiting for the multitude to come to him, which, of course, he knew they would. The English translations usually have a mountain. Adam Clark says it should be the mountain because of an article in front in the Greek. Those articles are kind of fuzzy. I don't know. I don't think you can make too much out of them. But Clark says that Jesus generally went to the same mountain every time. Well, whatever. He was at a mountain. In Decapolis, verse 30 through 31, And large crowds came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the deformed, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the deformed restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they gave glory to the God of Israel. Now, those unable to speak, those are dumb. They're also deaf. Usually the Greek word means deaf and dumb because those two uh, two handicaps usually go together. The interesting thing about deformed is that was probably included people who had lost a hand or a foot. In other words, the limb was not merely twisted or withered. It was gone. Uh, an examination of the Greek by Adam Clark, can't, he, can't, he comes up with that idea. Too complicated to go into his arguments here, but his he believes that it's talking about the limbs were missing, and therefore Jesus was doing creative miracles, creating things out of thin air. Now, I've actually seen a creative miracle on my uh, left leg. Uh, as my left leg grew out from about halfway uh, up my calf or uh, out, where there was no bone before, that happened to me when I was in college. I'll never forget it. Never lost, never doubted my face since because I was doubting it pretty bad at the time. It was a miracle. Hot boiling oil flowing down the leg, and I looked up and watched the leg grow out. Yeah, I know. I know, I know. I'm probably some nut job charismatic. I'm probably a liar. I'm probably a scam artist. I'm probably taking up a collection with an ATM right behind my microphone here. I'm sure the cessationists have got some way to explain it away. But, oh, no, I know it happened. It was a creative miracle, and so I don't have any problem with thinking that Jesus, when he healed these deformed people in Matthew 15, he was creating limbs out of thin air. 
Now, notice, what was the response to these people? Now, how many times do you hear cessationists say, oh, they just want the miracles. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about God. They're just selfish. They just want to get healed. Of course, you know, when the cessationists get sick, what do they do? They go to a doctor because they want to get healed. Gee, we can say, gee, you know, cessationists, you're so selfish. Instead of just letting Jesus work on your character and remaining sick, you go to a doctor to get healed and thus take away God's working in your life. Now, what, how did the people here here in Decapolis, on this mountain, what did they, how did they respond to all this healing? It says in the last part of verse 31, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. They gave glory to the God of Israel. They didn't come just for the miracles. They gave glory to God. It says the same thing in Luke 5, by the way. They came for the healing. They came for the teaching as well as the healing. Just wasn't just for the healing. There were some times when they left when things got tough. When things got tough, and you can point to one of those verses, but there's so many other verses that show that they were not out just for the healing. They were out for the kingdom. They were out to give God glory. And this is one of them. Matthew 15, verse 32. Now Jesus summoned his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry because they might collapse on the way. The people wanted to hear Jesus so badly and wanted to get healed by Jesus so badly that they overstayed their food supply. It doesn't mean they went and stayed three days without food and didn't eat for three days. It meant they went and stayed and stayed and stayed, and their food ran out after three days. So they were getting hungry, and Jesus said, he said, I don't want to send them away hungry. They might collapse on the way because they're so hungry. Now, I think that Jesus was probably getting ready to do another miracle, just like he did with the 5,000. And he's probably setting his disciples up. Did you learn the last time about the 5,000? We got 4,000 out here. And we don't have any food. Let's see how you handle this one. So, Matthew 15, verses 33 through 34. The disciples said to him, Where can we get enough bread in this desolate place to fill such a crowd? Now, you would think they had learned from the, what happened with the feeding of the 5,000. But they seem to not have learned. They, they, they acted uh, somewhat credulous, somewhat astonished that Jesus would ask them to feed all these people. John Gill says the disciples completely forgot about the former miracle of feeding the 5,000. And I, my, in my notes, I ask, how could they have done this? Well, I don't know. It's possible. Miracles are, it's easy to forget miracles. God's, or, and even It's easy to forget providence. God has done so many providential things in your life. We just forget when the next problem comes. Oh, I'm not going to get out of this one. Gill, as well as the NIV Study Bible, says that they were stupid and forgetful. Or suggested that. The NIV Study Bible suggests another alternative. Perhaps they were simply reflecting reality. They couldn't handle the job. Where can we get enough bread? In other words, they're not saying, Jesus, where can we get enough bread? They were saying, Jesus, uh, there's not anywhere we can buy bread around here. In other words, it depends on their tone of voice, exactly how lacking in faith they were. It could be, said the NIV Study Bible, they just remembered how Jesus fed the 5,000. And so they said, uh, hey, we're turning the job over to you. We can't buy the food here. There's no place to buy it. So it's your turn now, Jesus. Work another miracle. So in, in other words, they might have actually had faith and not been afflicted with a lack of faith. Hard to say. Matthew 15:35 through 36. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks and broke broke them and kept on giving them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds kept on giving them because in perfect tense he kept breaking it and there's more bread breaking it and more bread a creative miracle he made them sit down because it's easier to serve people when they're sitting down easier to see them easier to see who had been served and who had not been served it was easier to count them so they knew how many people were there 
And you notice he says he gave thanks. Matthew says he blessed the bread. Some translations say he blessed the bread. You don't bless bread. You don't bless food. You either bless God or God blesses people. But things are not blessed. There's no object to the verb to bless. And of course, this was a Jewish custom to give thanks to God before they ate. Matthew 15, verses 37 through 38, they all ate and were filled. Then they collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, not just the it was not 4,000 altogether. It was 4,000 men plus their women and children. Again, there might not have been a lot of women and children because, after all, they were in the middle of the boondocks. The men might not have carried the women and children with them, but a, a lot of women and children with them. But it doesn't matter. There was a lot of people, a lot more than the s- disciples had food for. Now, they ended up with seven large baskets full. They started out with seven baskets. <laughs> well, I say seven baskets. They started out with seven loaves. And if we assume one loaf fit in one basket, then they would have seven baskets. Maybe so. They fed, and they had just as much as they started. They hadn't lost a thing. So here's a good application here. You don't need a lot of material provision to do the work of the Lord God, to do the work of God. You just need one day's worth at a time. That's what they had. They had just enough to feed 4,000 people. Now, of course, the 4,000 makes it distinct from the 5,000. In fact, I'm going to give you some differences from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown to help distinguish these two incidents. The time was different. The 5,000 was before. The 4,000 was later. The preceding and the following circumstances were different. Here, they were three days without food, but they were less than a day without food for the fourth 5,000. So with the feeding of the 4,000, the 4,000 went had, had been without food. They had been in the wilderness for three days before they ran out of food, but they, those in the wilderness around Bethsaida, Julius, with the feeding of the 5,000, they were there for about a day. So that's the difference. The number of loaves, there were seven loaves to, to feed the 4,000, only five for the 5,000. The number of fish, there were two fish for the 5,000. There was a few fish for the 4,000. The number of baskets filled with fragments, there were 12 baskets left over for the 5,000 and seven baskets left over for the 4,000. And the kind of basket, different Greek word, a kofanus basket for the 5,000 and a spurus basket for the 4,000. I don't know what the difference are doesn't matter but the point is this was another humongous miracle it was not a repeat of the same miracle before now in the case of the five feeding of the 5,000 everybody wanted to make Jesus king but not not so here it's not mentioned that anybody wanted to make Jesus king now as what there's an interesting problem here why how did they have so many baskets they had seven baskets how did they have so many of them in the wilderness well, they could have borrowed from the crowd, maybe, or the apostles might have had them with them because Jews carried the baskets with them personally. They had a custom of carrying straw and hay in baskets to memorialize their slavery in Egypt. Sometimes they would carry baskets because they were afraid of being polluted by heathens' meat, so they would carry their provisions with them so they wouldn't have to buy that nasty Gentile unkosher meat. Sometimes they carried hay to sleep on in their baskets. But anyway, so the, the apostles each could have had their own basket. Now, notice they picked up their own leftovers. The apostles did, which means the others, the 4,000 in the crowd would pick up their leftovers. So the apostles ended up with seven baskets, but the 4,000 men, they probably had some left over too. They had a big feast there in the wilderness. They feasted in the wilderness. God is a God of provision, Jehovah Jireh. He provides, just like he provided a sacrifice for Abraham instead of Isaac, he provides for us. Providence, the first word in providence is provide. The women and children are listed separately because Matthew was writing to Jews, and he he was, of course, this is the Jewish gospel, really. And the Jews did not permit women and children to eat publicly with the men, and so they are listed separately. 
and actually they ate separately, they would go into a place by themselves to eat. Matthew 15, verse 39. After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the last verse in the chapter here. It's a geographical note. He crosses the lake from the east side of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere in the Decapolis region, and he goes to Magadan. Another name for Magadan, another name for Magadan is Magdala, where Mary Magdalene lived, the home of Mary Magdalene. Now, some people dispute whether Magadan is Magdala. I'm not going to dispute it. it. sounds the same to me. It's close enough. I've got a long technical quote here from BibleAtlas.org discussing the geography here, which I'm not going to read, but the uh, BibleAtlas.org mentions that Mark calls the area Dalmanutha, and the NIV Study Bible says that south of the plain of Gennesaret, where Magadan was, by the way, you look on the Sea of Galilee, look at and the northeast coast there is the northeast beach is Gennesaret, and the northern town on the in the plain of Gennesaret is Capernaum, which is on the northeast shore. Then, if you go south of Gennesaret, right, almost getting pretty close to dead middle of the Sea of Galilee on the western shore, you've got Magadan or Magdala, and the NIV Study Bible says that. In that area, south of the plain of Gennesaret, a cave has been found, which is called Talmanutha, which sounds like Dalmanutha. So the NIV Study Bible says that Dalmanutha and Magadan may be named for the same place, or at least two places that are close to each other on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. Mark mentions Dalmanutha. Mark 8, verses 10 says that immediately Jesus immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So now we'll leave Jesus here at the end of chapter 15 on the western, central western coast of the Sea of Galilee, and we'll take it up next time. I hope you enjoyed this audio.